Hi, everybody. I'm Donna. I'm an alcoholic. I am so humbled to be invited to uh, participate in Crested Butte. This is an honor beyond words. It is always an honor to participate in any in any area, in any way, in Alcoholics Anonymous. But I'll tell you, this is, this is so special to me. I've just been looking forward to this forever. And uh, all of the wonderful things that I've ever heard about Crested Butte didn't come close to what the experience has been. And I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for every bit of hospitality you've extended to us. Uh, Terry and I have just had the best time. And I want to thank uh, Janie and Kay. They are just, I mean, I want to take these two home with me. I just, they got to come with me now. Um, it's, a, it's so amazing. You know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, we have a way of touching each other's lives. It just doesn't happen anywhere else you go. You know, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen for me in family or friendships, even other friendships. But this is something significant. And uh, when I leave here, I take you with me. And when you leave here, you take part of me with you. And it's a it's an extended family that I'm so grateful for. A good friend of mine, Carol T. from uh, from uh, California, always says that this is her love family, and that just does it for me. You know, to me, Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. Where in the world would we be? You know, can, I can't even believe the quality of life that I live today. I live an absolutely blessed, blessed life. I would rather be me than anybody I know. And that was not the case when I came here. Um, what I have today is a life that's been built by the principles and the steps and the love and guidance that I've gotten from sponsors and Alcoholics Anonymous. And you have given me so much. And tonight before I come up here, I just asked God to help me to try to open my heart a little bit and just show you some of the joy that you've given me because it is literally beyond words to try to express this to you. So I'm just very grateful for this opportunity. I also want to tell you how much I enjoyed the golf tournament. It was wonderful, particularly since I won. Uh, I have to tell you, though, this was a, this is the first time that I found out that in AA, you know, some involvement with AA that you could waive the rigorously honest rule. I didn't, I didn't know that. No, I had a great, great time, and I had it was really, really fun. I love doing stuff like that at a conference because you really get to know people. When you're out doing something completely different than in meetings, you really get to know people, and you get to share some stuff, and it's really special. Um. Oh, my gosh. I made a little list like Chuck did, and I left it in the room. I'm blonde. I'm not really blonde, but, you know. <clears throat> anyway, uh, I just hope that I have said thank you, thank you, thank you um, adequately, because I have certainly wanted to not leave anything out. This is such a wonderful thing. I want to share with you tonight in a general way uh, what it used to be like and what happened for me and what it's like for me today. And I'll tell you, my life is an absolute myth. It's yes, beyond description. And I'm going to tell you something. When I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I did not want to be here. I was not happy about this. This was not what I wanted. I was different than you, and you people just got on my nerves. I mean, it was. I was here because it was sort of the last house on the block, and I needed to be here. But, boy, it was a long, long, long time for me to, you know, get the edges kind of worn down a little bit so that I could begin to hear the language of the heart, which is what we hear here. Um, I am not from California. I'm a Montana drunk, and I'm a sleazy little drunk, and I did a lot of drinking in the cowboy bars up in Montana. Particularly, I grew up in Billings, and I, I did a lot of drinking up in Red Lodge in a little ski resort town, which is very much like Crested Butte. It's just not quite as high, but it's, uh, it's a little town like this. In uh, Red Lodge, there are no traffic lights, and they have 14 bars in that town. 
and there's about 2,000 people that live there, and those bars do just fine. Um, I, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I really think that I am a person who was born with the disease of alcoholism. I walked around. Um, I grew up in a family of a lot of alcoholism. My dad was the alcoholic in our home, and, and there was a lot of rage and a lot of uh, violence and a lot of stuff that went on in our home. And, um, you know, my reaction to that was, I really believed that there was something wrong with me, and that's why these things were going on. I really believed that. And for my whole life, uh, the people around me determined my value to me, and the people around me told me if I was okay. And when you live in a home of alcoholism and the kind of things that we create in our home, uh, you don't get a good image. You know, you just don't get a good picture. Now, before I say another thing I want to tell you, I don't blame a single person for any event in my life, nothing. And uh, by uh, the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've been given... Um, a relationship with my mom and dad that I guarantee you would not have been possible. And it is because in AA by my sponsors I have been taught to look at what kind of daughter I am being to them rather than what kind of parents that they were to me. And, uh, you know, I don't feel sorry for myself and I don't blame anybody, but that's just the case. That's the deal. I grew up in a, in a family that had every kind of garden variety abuse that is created in alcoholic homes. And when I was a little kid, I was just a, I was a coward. I was not a fighter. I just wanted to comply. I wanted to cut my losses. I wanted everything to be okay. And I don't know where I got the idea, but I just knew from an early age that if I could do it right, if I could just be good enough, that they would love me and everything would be all right. And, uh, you know, the truth is they lived with their own their own deal. And, and what was going on in our home really didn't have anything to do with me except that I was there. You know, I, I was... Uh, I was affected by it, and uh, there were things that happened for me, but I, you know, it wasn't about me. But I walked around from the earliest memories that I have. I was a person that was full of guilt and fear and shame and self-loathing and anger and resentment and secrets. I had more secrets than a person had a right to. And um, I was just a chicken little kid, you know. I just grew up in this home. I just tried to get by as best I could. And when I was 17 years old, my dad got caught for some of the things that were going on in our home. And we ended up leaving Montana in the middle of a blizzard in February in the middle of the night. You know, we went to Northern California. And uh, I know that they thought that they were going to go somewhere far away and make it different. You know, and that's what they wanted to do. And, and I was just this kid. You know, I was 17 years old. I'd never been to a dance or a football game. I knew nothing. I knew nothing except that I wasn't like anybody I knew. And I was so full of... All the things I just told you, I was just full of that, you know. I was just terrified of everybody and everything. And I went to work. You know, I quit high school and I went to work. And when I was, uh, I don't know what happened, for about a year I didn't do much of anything. And uh, then I met this man. And he was stationed in Charleston, South Carolina in the Navy. And, uh, you know, i got to tell you, I'm very selective about the people that I've married. I married anyone who asked. Um <laughs> I just thought maybe they knew something I didn't know, and sure, whatever. So he asked me, you know, to marry him, and I said, yeah. And uh, all I knew was in the back of my head that I was going to go somewhere far, far away, and I was going to make life different for me than it had been at home, you know, and that's the whole deal. And I, I married this guy, and I'm telling you, we had uh, I married him, and we had five kids in six years and three months, <clears throat> and I was busy. I had stuff to do. I was really busy, very overwhelmed. And uh, I had no idea how to be a wife and a mother. I had no clue how to act in this family. I walked around with all of this guilt and fear and shame and self-loathing and all these secrets and all this stuff. And all I did was try to imitate what I saw. You know, there's this little story that I tell sometimes, and this is just a little snapshot of who I am. 
I was uh, married to this guy, and we had four girls and, and one boy, and they were like, boom, 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 you know. And all I knew was that I was supposed to act like the grown-ups did. Now, when I was a kid growing up, we lived outside of Billings, and my mom used to buy her eggs from the guy that lived down the road that had a whole bunch of chickens. And so when the egg cartons were empty in our house, you didn't throw them away. You put them on top of the fridge, and when she had like three or four or whatever, she'd take them down the road, fill them up, and you get the idea. Well, I was married to this guy for about six months, and I had this big old stack of egg cartons on top of the fridge. And one day he said to me, what are you saving these for? And I was like, I don't know. That's where they go. That's, that's what you're supposed to do with them. That's what the big people did, you know. And that's, that's all I knew. I mean, I literally, I knew that I didn't want to, you know, uh, include the, the abuse and the kind of, those kind of things. I knew that. But I was just trying to do what my mom did. And my mom, you know, was just, I don't know, she just did what she did. She was just trying to control whatever she could possibly control to make it okay. And keep us away from dad so he wasn't angry because he was a real violent drunk. So anyway, I met, after I have these kids and uh, I'm just so full of terror and I've got more responsibility than anybody like me should ever have. I shouldn't be trusted with plants, never mind kids. And, um, but I've got all these kids and I didn't know what to do. And I was just, I mean, I'm telling you, about every six months I was on the phone to suicide prevention. I, I was a person who had no answers. I had no tools for living, none. I had no way to keep going. And I had, there were, there was everything that I didn't know about how to do this. And uh, I remember being, you know, in a phone booth. And one of the places that we lived, we moved a lot. And um, I was in a phone booth one night, and I was on the phone to suicide prevention. And it would happen time and time again. And they would always send me to Catholic Social Services or Lutheran Family Services or someplace. And I would go and take some counseling until I felt a little bit better. And then I'd be like, thank you very much. And I would leave because it was a whole lot about my background that I didn't want to go into. And when I was 27 years old, my oldest child was six. My youngest was nine months old. My husband left, and I went to work in the cowboy bars up in Montana. And I can tell you, just as sure as I'm standing here tonight, with no doubt in my mind, that what I found when I started to drink with any kind of regularity was a power greater than myself that made my life work for me for the first time. And I needed the relief that I got from drinking so bad. I mean, I don't even know how I lived. I was 27 years old. I don't know how I made it that long. All I knew was that I didn't want to be like him. So I wasn't going to drink. I didn't want to be like my dad. And I don't know. When I started drinking up there in those bars, I found relief. I found, you know, something that made me happy, joyous, and free for the first time. And it was just like, it just sort of felt like I could take a whole breath, you know. It was all right. It was okay. It didn't make it go away, and it didn't make it all right for me that I had come from what I came from. It just, it made me not have to deal with it. You know, and I was just running around and doing all this partying and drinking. I'm a bar drinker, and I'm a blackout drinker, and I was I was bad at it. You know, I wasn't good at that either. And um, there was this guy in Red Lodge I used to drink with all the time. And he used to say, let's get drunk and be somebody. And I always said, let's get drunk and be somebody else. And that is exactly why I'm an alcoholic, because alcohol did that for me. You know, when I could put booze in me, I didn't have to be that scared little kid from Billings, Montana that knew what everybody didn't that didn't know what everybody else knew. And I didn't have to have the history that I had and the secrets that I had and the shame that I had. I could put booze in me and I could be anybody I wanted to be. And I just loved it. I just loved it. And I was a newly divorced mom and I had all these little kids and in the beginning of my drinking, you know, it went okay. I had a lot of fun up in Red Lodge. I had a lot of fun. We did a lot of wild partying and uh I don't know, it was a very enabling little community. We all kind of looked after each other, you know, and I don't know, I managed to pull it off for a while, but as my disease progressed, 
my life just, it just, I mean, all I can tell you is that it just gutted me. I mean, it just gutted me. It took everything that mattered to me at all and just tore it out of my life. You know, I'm a person who's very, uh, I'm kind of private and I'm kind of quiet, believe it or not. I don't know why it is that God makes me stand up here and tell the story because this is not me to be doing this, but um, that's who I am. And I was living a life that was not that way at all. And I was humiliating myself constantly and I was neglecting my kids and that's the reality of it. I mean, I could stand up here and tell you great stories about my grandma. I had some real fun times. But uh, the reality is it took, it took away everything that mattered to me, absolutely everything. Uh, the very, uh, my whole drinking career, you know, my complete drinking career, I was so bad at this. It lasted about eight years. And at the end, of, I mean, I was already trying to quit within about a couple of years of drinking. And the only thing is, for me, Alcohol was the only solution I'd ever known. It was the only thing that had ever done it for me. It is the only thing that made it okay to be Donna on this earth in my skin. And um, I went back to it time and time and time again. Um, it was uh, it was a terrible way to live. You know, alcoholism is a disease that destroys the lives of people that don't have it. And that's exactly what happened in my family. You know, I drug my kids through active alcoholism. Um, it was, in the beginning, I used to pull it off okay. You know, I'd manage to go to work and pay the rent and do all that stuff. And as the time wore on, I just got more and more unreliable. I mean, I'm not telling anybody here anything you don't know. I mean, uh, you couldn't count on me for anything. If I pick up a drink, there is no telling where I'm going to show up and what kind of shape I'm going to be in when I do. Uh, the only thing is I did not have any ability to not pick up that drink as much as I knew the trouble that it was causing, and as much as I was being forced to live it like I'm not, like the person I'm not, you know, it's just not who I am. Um, it was, I used to do, at the very end of my drink, and I'll just go there, the very last bit of it was just, I'd already been trying to quit for a few years unsuccessfully, and uh, I was living in Red Lodge, and there was this bar I used to go into all the time. Now, when I first moved to Red Lodge, I'd never go there. It was like this really, it was the kind of place you could smell before you got to it when you were walking down the sidewalk, you know. It was called the Snag Bar. And I was just up in Red Lodge about three weeks ago, and that place is still there. And I had to walk in there. It was the first time I've been in there since those days, you know. And I had to go in there and look at that place, and it is just amazing. I mean, it is just everything that you might think it is. Um, it had a big old, you know, pot belly stove in the corner and pool table in the middle of the floor, and the jukebox was going all day long, and it opened at 7 o'clock in the morning, and it was just a... It was not a fancy cocktail lounge, <laughs> and uh, that was my home. You know, that's what I, I would hit the post office in the morning and pick up my mail and go to the snag for my first whatever, cup of coffee if I was going to have coffee, you know. Um, if you're a bar drinker, I'll tell you what the snag used to do for me. I would go in there and be forgiven for my sins, and uh, I loved that about the snag. I could go in there and say, oh, my God, you know, you can't believe what I did last night, and somebody would always say to me, I don't worry about that. I did worse than that. Let's have some whiskey. And we would have some whiskey, and it just started all over again, you know. It was a place that had signs on the walls that said, please check your guns with the bartender. And uh, I have to tell you that I was a member of the Snagette softball cheerleading team. <laughs> I mean, I had the shirt and everything. It was Snagette across the back. You know, it was bad. And that place is still there, and it just, it just amazes me to go back to Red Lodge. I've been there. The first few times after I got sober that I went back to Red Lodge, I had a lot of shame and a lot of like, oh, God, it was so uncomfortable for me to be there and look at those places where I was. And, you know, I just didn't like that. 
But after, I've been sober for a little while, and, and I have come to have a lot of forgiveness for that person that used to live there. That woman, that pathetic little woman that had no choices, because I didn't have choices in those days. And, uh, you know, it's by the grace of God, and it's by Alcoholics Anonymous that I don't live like that today. I mean, really, I don't know whether I'd be dead or not, but if I was alive, it wouldn't be worth living. I know that for sure. Because I was still doing what I was doing. Uh, my life was, you know, was not fun, and it didn't do, it, it wasn't exciting, and it wasn't good. It was just, I was terrible at it. I remember, you know, being a blackout drinker, there's just nothing more annoying than when they say to you, don't you remember what you did last night? I mean, I just hate that. They are always saying this, and it's just, it's never nice things. It's always these horrible, embarrassing stuff, you know? I mean, I remember standing there saying, geez, I don't even think that about your husband. I, I don't know what to tell you, you know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, it was just awful. And alcohol controlled every aspect of my life, you know. Alcohol destroyed my family. It destroyed the lives of my kids just about. And uh, it's been by the grace of God and it's been by, by my recovery and the example of my recovery that has allowed some of my kids to find their way to their answers. You know, my sponsor, his name is Polly P. And I am so grateful for her. I called her the night before, before I came up here and um, I didn't get to talk to her, but I got to talk to her answering machine. That was almost as good. Um, but she always says, she says one interesting thing. She said, you know, I know that a lot of my kids' problems have my name on them. But she said their solutions today have their name on them. And I'm very, very grateful that I have that and I have a, a woman like Polly that I can watch how she lives her life and the way she deals with her family because she really is an example of Alcoholics Anonymous. She really does this deal. At any rate, uh, I was a miserable, pathetic horrible, depressed, uh, demoralized little drunk, you know. And uh, I, came home, I came out of a blackout one morning, and I was living with a guy that was a drummer in a country rock band. And he was not exactly a pillar of the community, you know. But we woke up one morning, and he said to me, man, you know, you have got to do something about your drink. And uh, I kind of resented that, I mean, you know. But he, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a dependent person. I'm dependent on everything. And I was dependent on him. I just wanted to keep him around. And he said, you know, why don't you go to AA? And I said, okay. You know, I mean, I didn't know what AA was. I'd never heard of AA. And uh, I had no idea. I had no idea that there were people who could recover. I didn't know that this was a disease. And I didn't know that you could recover from it. I went to Alcoholics Anonymous for the first time in February of 1981 in Red Lodge, Montana. And I totally expected to find people who were trying not to drink. Because that's what I've been doing, was trying not to drink. And I was not very successful at it. It never even crossed my mind that I would find people who were, like, not drinking, you know, were actually sober. And I made the biggest mistake, and it was a mistake that I made everywhere I went. I walked into this group. There's about six people that are the core members of this group in Red Lodge. They meet one night, one night a week. Not enough for a sick little person like me. But uh, that was all there was. And I went into this meeting. And there were three women in there. And they were about... A hundred. I mean, they were, I don't know, I was 30. I was, you know, cute and cool and all that. And uh, they looked old to me, and they were all, like, nice. You could tell by looking at them that they were nice people. They had this nice, clear face and eyes, and they all matched and everything. They had their little hair done. And, you know, I mean, I hadn't been a nice person in a really long time. And I, I met these people who were sober, and members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, I, I really believed this. I thought, you know. There's something wrong with me that isn't wrong with them because there is no way that they are a drunk like I'm a drunk. And, uh, you know, they were very kind to me and they were very patient with me and they encouraged me a lot. They were just thrilled beyond belief when I got a week sober. And uh, when I got 30 days, they were just, like, so excited and 
I began to do what I always did. And for me, you know, alcohol truly was my answer. And alcohol was the only answer that I'd ever found. It was the only thing that would adequately take away the guilt and the shame and the fear and the self-loathing and the anger and the secret, even for just a little while. And uh, when I tried not to drink because I thought that I was, you know, I'm a drunk and I need not to drink. I get in bad trouble when I drink. Um, when I tried not to drink, I mean, uh, reality just sets in and after just a short time, maybe a couple of weeks or 30 days or something like that, it is, I've had all of the sobriety that I can stand. I mean, I feel like my skin is going to just, you know, like I have none. I'm just dying. Because the guilt and the anger and the fear and the shame and the self-loathing is bigger now than it was before, you know. And the way I've been living and the way things are and the, the look in my kids' eyes, you know. I am a mother who, um, if I ha- was raising my kids today, I probably wouldn't even be allowed to keep my kids. And I'm not happy about that. But I am a, I am a person who neglected and abused and loved and nurtured my kids all at once. I mean, I'm the kind of guy... They could walk in the door one night and just tell them they are the most gorgeous, precious thing I've ever known and how smart they are and how wonderful they are and how much I love them. Or I might walk in the next night and blow my cork because the dish rag is in the wrong place on the counter. And you never knew with me. You know, and I just, I mean, my kids, it was like that computer face. I mean, you walk in and they would check me out to see how is she today, you know. And it just, it tore everything out. It just tore it all apart. It tore everything out. Any ability to have anything decent in my life was gone because of drinking but when I tried not to drink all of the shame and the horrible things that I was running from were so there that I couldn't stand it and I did this over and over and over and over again I bounced in and out of the rooms of AA for seven years and if you know for the new people who are here tonight you don't have to do that you do not have to do that um, I don't know if I just got here too soon or why this was for me except that I just couldn't stand it and I didn't hear an answer for a very long time over that seven years, it uh, got worse and never better, you know, just like they promised me. And uh, I lost my kids. My kids went to visit their dad over Christmas one year, and they never came home. They never came home. Now, my kids are all grown now, and they're married, and they're ha- they have kids of their own, and they're back in my life today. But it's only because of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's only because of staying sober that that's happened for me. But they left, and they never came back. And when that happened for me, um, you know, that was like my big intervention. I mean, it was not planned, but it was perfect. Um, I wanted those kids in my life more than anything in the world because they were the only thing in my life that kept me earthbound at all. That was the only reason I stayed alive. I was so suicidal. And I wanted them, and I needed them, and I loved them. But I was a terrible mother, and I'm really glad that they did what they did. And uh, even with the motivation of wanting my kids more than anything in the world, I could not stay sober. I mean, I had every reason to stay sober, and I could not do it. And that's what powerlessness is about. You know, i got to tell you that if, if wanting to be sober was enough for us to get sober and keep us sober, this room would not begin to hold the people that have come to this conference alone. I mean, it just it just doesn't get it. There's a man I love very much from Long Beach named Frank H. He's my husband's sponsor. And he says that Alcoholics Anonymous is not a program for people who need it, and it's not a program for people who want it. It's a program for people who do it. And I'll tell you what, I needed it for a long time before I wanted it. And I really wanted it for a long time before I was just driven by imminent death to do some things that made no sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> um, you know, that just seemed to be so completely unrelated. To take some actions that I didn't understand that began to, to produce something different in my life. You know, they talk in Alcoholics Anonymous about uh, being sick as your secret. That's one of the things that we hear here. 
And uh, I thought when I heard that phrase that what they were talking about was uh, the secrets, you know, those horrible, horrible things that I wanted no one to know, no living person would ever find this out about me. And uh, there's another way to look at that, actually. Um, you know, there were things that I didn't tell people, and some of them I could have gotten a lot of help with. Like, I came into the rooms of AA, and I tried to look like you look, and act like you act, and I read how it works, and I pour the coffee, and I do whatever, and I get drunk over and over and over again. And I was just trying to hide in here. I was just trying to hide. And what I didn't know, the, some of the secrets that I carried around with me that ended up costing me so much was that I didn't know that I was supposed to say to you, like, for example, uh, I am so full of fear that I can't even sleep at night. You know, I mean, I lay down and I just, I just feel like I'm going to cry, but I can't cry. You know, I didn't know that I could tell you those things. Did you have solutions for me about along those lines? You know, you had something that you could suggest to me. I didn't know that. So what I did was I'd walk in the room, they'd say, how are you? And I'd say, fine. I'm fine. I'm full of terror. I can't stand this one more second, but I'm fine. And I'm uh, not going to tell anybody, you know. I just didn't know how to do it. I did not know how to do it. And I'm so afraid of everybody that I was afraid that if you knew what I was like, that you would really throw me out of here. And, you know, I wasn't as good as everybody else. And I wasn't going to let that be known. So I just about died from that, bouncing in and out of the rooms of AA. Uh, after I lost my kids, I wanted more than anything in the world to be sober, and I just couldn't do it. I did go to treatment at one point in there, and i got to tell you that treatment, it was good. It was very good for me. They gave me 28 days, and I had never had 28 days, not since I picked up a drink, not not alcohol and drug-free. I mean, there was no way. There was no way that I could do it, and I knew how hard that 28 days was to get, and I wanted to hold on to it. And I came out of treatment, and I... uh they taught me a lot about the disease of alcoholism, and they told me to go to AA. I mean, I can't, I'm not going to be fault that one bit. Um, I came out of treatment, and I went to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, and I did what I'd always done. I, you know, how are you? I'm just fine. And I, um, I didn't get a sponsor. I didn't talk about those things that I had. I didn't talk about the fear. I just tried to act like you act and look like you look, you know, and it wouldn't work. I did manage. I thought, though that if I could just stay sober for a year, that maybe my kids would come back. And that's what I wanted. That was my whole goal. And um, I bounced around for a while. I stayed sober, and I was in and out of meetings and billings. And i got to tell you that there was just stuff that happens here in, in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings which just was right over my head. There was this, I used to go to meetings a lot in billings, and there was this guy that was this tall, skinny cowboy, he always had some kind of manure on his boots. He always dressed in black, and he had a big old wad of Copenhagen in his lip, you know. And he would say things like, uh, you know, when it comes to pain and sobriety, sometimes you just got to be like the mule in the hailstorm. You just got to hunker down and take it. And I remember thinking, you know, I was hoping for a little more than that. <laughs> that is not really a comfort to me, thanks. And he was the first guy that I ever heard say this. He said that when it came to drinking, he was like the tomcat making love to the skunk. He hadn't had all he wanted, but he had all he could stand. <laughs> and I thought, you know, where do you get these people? I mean, is this Shakespeare or what? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I was just trying to kind of hang in there. Somewhere in about six months or something like that, I had a girlfriend that the oil industry had left Montana, and there were no jobs up there. I had a girlfriend that had moved to Kona, Hawaii, and I thought, okay, I'm going to go over to Kona. My kids are gone anyway. I'm going to go over there and go to work, and I'll gather up some bucks, and then I'll come home. And I went over there, and I managed to stay sober for 13 and a half months. And I went into meetings in Kona, and I did the same thing there I'd always done. You know, how are you? I'm just fine. And I would sit down in meetings, and I read how it works, and I did the stuff. And I, I'm telling you, 
I'm telling you with absolutely everything in me, I believed down to my toes that I was doing what I was asked to do in AA. I did not know that I was not. And there were people over there who could see me coming about 10 miles away. And there was this one guy named Frank. He used to just get on my nerves so bad. And um, and he said to me one time, you know, what are you doing to stay sober? Like, what exactly are you doing? And I said, well, I'm praying a lot. And he said, yeah, well, you and your God are going to get drunk. <laughs> and I was just furious. I was like, you can't say that to me. I mean, how can you say that if I can't depend on God to keep me sober? Then there's no hope for any of us. And uh, I don't know. He just knew that I didn't have an answer, I guess. And he would needle me a little bit. And I managed to stay sober over there for a little while. And um, my whole deal was to get in the year, you know. So when I got a year, I invited my oldest daughter. She was the angriest of all of them and had every right to be. She had been the parent in our family for a long time. And she had made all the decisions for a long time. And she didn't know how to be a kid. And it was her 16th birthday, and I have it all planned. I'm going to invite her over to the island, and we are going to do the island. Boy, we're going to just have a great time. And uh, she, I have her for 10 days, and at the end of 10 days, she got ready to go home. And I said, well, you know, Trina, I'm, I'm ready to come back now. And I've got, like, I had 13 and a half months of sobriety. I said, I'll come home, and we'll get a house, and, you know, you guys can come home. And she said, no, Mom, we don't want to live with you anymore. And I lost my reason to stay sober. You know, she left, and I made it about two more weeks. And I had no answer. All I had was that I hadn't drank. That was it. And, um... I ended up picking up a drink in Kona, and then I'm telling you what, it just got, oh, my God. I, I just knew that I couldn't do this. I cannot do this. I have to be sober. I mean, or I'm never going to get those kids back. And I couldn't do it. I had no power. And I would stay sober for two weeks and get drunk for a day and stay sober for a month. And, you know, the last time I drank on the 5th of May, 1987, I had 89 days of sobriety, and I had nothing going on. And I was getting angrier and angrier and angrier. I'm telling you, I came into the meetings there, and these people, I knew people in Kona that didn't have two brain cells, and they were staying sober. And I could not understand what they were doing, you know, but I couldn't get it. And they were on my nerves, and I was really, I mean, the first, I probably did this, I probably had to raise my hand as a new person in AA maybe 30 times. And it gets to be a little tedious after a while. And, um... In Kona, they used to do this thing where they said, is there anybody here for their first, second, or third meeting since their last train? And everybody would look at me to see if I'm going to raise my hand today, you know? And I used to come into AA with all this firm resolve about, okay, you're going to go in there, and you are going to be sober, and you're going to do them stuff, and you're going to whatever they tell you to do, you know? You are, I'd give myself a big lecture, and then I would, full of resolve, I would go into AA. And i got to tell you, probably the last uh, four or five times, I just I knew beyond a doubt that there was no way that I was going to be sober. I knew I wasn't going to stay sober. I knew I was going to get drunk. And I was just putting as many days together as I could before I drank again because I always had and I knew that I would. And I was all done even hoping that there was anything that was going to help me because I was, I don't know what's wrong, but I can't get it. And I was in a meeting one night and this Frank guy, this annoying Frank guy, was leading the meeting. And at the end of the meeting, he said, is there anybody here with a burning desire? And I'd heard that a thousand times before. But, uh, I don't know what, why I did this, but I raised my hand up. I said, yeah, i got a burning desire for you. I just thought, you know, let's just get it over with here. <laughs> and I said, you know, you people just make me sick. I said, you are always telling me that sober is better, and sober does not feel better to me. I mean, I can't stand this. This is just bad. And um, I don't even know what I said. I just said it. And my feeling was, you know, throw me out of here or give me the secret. I mean, whatever. I mean, let's just, let's just... 
get it on, you know, whatever I need to do, get that, get worse, get better, whatever's going to happen, let's make it happen. And, and uh, after I shut up, there was this kind of weird silence in the room for a minute, and then somebody went, right on, Donna, keep coming back. And I thought, God, these people are weird, you know? And after the meeting that night, I was talking to this guy, and I said, I don't know why this program won't work for me, but it just won't work. And he said, well, you know, how long, how long has it been since you've had a drink? And I said, 45 days. And it was like, <laughs> you know, every second that I could stand. And he just looked at me and said, well, what makes you think it's not working? I said, because I hate this. I mean, I am not happy driving free in case you hadn't noticed. And, um, you know, you people are all like loving each other and kissing and hugging and everything. And I just can't stand this. This is not good. And uh, he showed me a line in the 12 and 12. I mean, I happened to be talking to the right person. And he literally picked up a 12 and 12, and he opened it to the seventh step. And there was one sentence in there, and it says, In every case, pain had been the price of admission into a new life. In every case. And I, you know, I don't know that that was a big consolation, but I do know that it bought me one more day. You know, I just remember thinking, okay, then maybe what I'm going through is, is not for nothing. You know, I'll just hang in there one more day. I went to a meeting the next night, and I met a woman that changed my life. I went into our Saturday night meeting, same old miserable person I'd always been, and there was a lady that I met in there. Her name was Phyllis Cowman. She died a long time ago. She was visiting. She had come over to Kona for a month after her husband had just died, and she was an unbelievable person. I mean, she was she just was the kind of woman that would walk in the room and just light up the room. She had this, this thing about her. It was just incredible. She was about, I think she was about like 27 years sober or something like that. And she was getting close to 60. And she was gorgeous. She was just gorgeous. She had this big old Janis Joplin hair. And she tied it up in big silk scarves. And she wore a bunch of jewelry. And she was just awesome. You know, she loved being a woman alcoholic. And she loved drunks. And she didn't care if you were drunk or sober. She didn't care if you stunk to heaven, you know. She just had a way of just gathering you up, you know. And she had a special gift that you pick up after you've been around AA for a while. And she could look around the room and pick out the thickest woman there and go right for her, you know. And I remember that she came up and put her arm around me and she said, Sweetheart, you just stay by me and everything's going to be okay. And I'm telling you, I just melted. I just melted. And I, I'm sure that there must have been a hundred wonderful people in AA that I've met at least who have given me the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. But for some reason that night when I heard Phyllis talk, I heard my story. I heard what I, I related to her. And she was awesome. She said, you know, sweetie, if I had a daughter, she'd be just like you. She'd be really sick. <laughs> and I just loved that. I thought, oh, that means she likes me. You know? She was so cool. She was so cool. She had so much joy. And I'll tell you the thing that I heard. I mean, up until that time, if you didn't have five kids, and you didn't come from what I came from, and you weren't a snagette, I didn't relate, you know? I just didn't identify. And uh, But she, we didn't have the same story. It wasn't like that. I mean, she had two kids. I had five kids. She was like this jet setter, wore these handmade clothing and all this stuff. And I'm this sleazy little drunk from Red Lodge. But the secrets were the same. She talked about her feelings. She talked about the secrets and the guilt and the shame and the fear and the self-loathing and the anger. And I knew exactly what she meant. And I knew that she was a real live drunk, too. She was a real sleazy drunk. She had done what I'd done and been where I'd been. And I knew that I wasn't going to shock her about anything. And, uh, you know, I just trusted her. I just trusted her. I spent every minute that I could with this woman the whole time she was there. And we were on the beach one day. Now, this is the part that, that where I tell, this is what happened. 
We were on the beach one day, and I said, Phyllis, I probably need to do another fourth step, right? She goes, no, sweetheart, you just need to do a first step, that's all. <laughs> and I said, I don't, you know, I don't know what you mean. I mean, how, how do you do a first step? I am an alcoholic. There is no doubt in my mind I'm an alcoholic. Uh, how do you do a first step? She says that there's implied action in the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous. She said, it says that we are powerless over alcohol and that our lives are unmanageable. And she said, the implied action there is that you need to find some new management. She said, you need to find a power greater than you are that will solve your problem. And I didn't know until I read it accidentally a couple of years later that that came right out of the big book, you know. And she said, but you need somebody with skin on them. You need somebody living and breathing right here on earth that you can talk to about your thinking because it is your thinking that is getting you in so much trouble. And I had no issue with that. I said, uh, okay, you know, what do I do? And she said, well, tell me about your higher power. What kind of higher power do you have? Excuse me. Um, so I started telling her about the churches I'd been to when I was a kid, you know. I started telling her about the things that I thought I knew about God. And she stopped me in the middle of that explanation, and she said, let me tell you something. She said, any God that you can understand will be too small for your needs. And she just blew my mind. I mean, I was like, what are you talking about? I had no idea what she was getting at. I said, what do you mean? She said, you've been trying to get sober a long time. It's not working. She said, maybe you should be willing to consider something else. And I said, like what? Well, what else is there? There's God and there's God, you know. And she said, let me tell you this. She said, when you lay down at night and you go to sleep, your lungs inflate and deflate all night long and your heart beats all night long. And there's nothing that you do before you go to bed that makes that happen. And I said, yeah. And she said, when your time on this earth is up, there is nothing that you could do to add one more minute to your time on this planet. When When your time is up, you're gone. I said, yeah. She said, then that is a power greater than yourself. She said, that's something you didn't create, and it's something you can't control. And she said, if you wake up in the morning and you're breathing, then you are a spiritual being, and God loves you as if you were his only child. And I'll tell you, I honestly had no idea what she could mean by that, but I love the way it sounded. It was, like, very simple. I said, well, don't I need to know who God is? I mean, don't I need to know who I'm going to turn my life and my will over to? And she said, no. She said, it's none of your business who God is. She said, God knows who he is. If you talk to him, he'll answer you, you know. I said, well, what do I call him? She just played it like real straight. She goes, well, you could call him God. And it was just getting harder by the minute, you know. I mean, there was nothing that I could argue with. I said, well, you know, I don't know that I understand. She said, look, whatever the difference between a live body and a dead body is, that is some kind of special. I mean, that is some kind of magic. That's something you didn't have anything to do with. And if you are here, then there's evidence that there is some sort of power in you, you know. And she said, uh, all you have to do is be willing to open yourself up. And I said, well, what do I do? And she said, tonight when you're alone, I want you to get on your knees and I want you to say this prayer. And you can say it, put it in however you want to say it, you know, put it in your own words. But the idea that you want to put out there is something like this. You want to say God, I don't know who you are, and I don't know what you want from me. But if you want anything to do with what's left of my life, then come on. Because I don't know where to go from here. And I'll tell you what, I thought about this a lot. And I thought that's probably the most honest prayer I'd ever heard. I mean, there's no bargaining there. There's no, like, if you'll do this, I'll do that. I mean, there was no proof. I don't know. See, I came here with a whole lot of old ideas. And some of the things I picked up, and I don't know, you know, if this just comes from, like, my little brain or if somebody actually told me. 
But I remember being about eight years old and going to church. And I don't know what they said, but I remember what I heard. And what I heard was that when I was born on this earth, I was not born this beautiful, innocent little child. That when I was born on earth, I was born with all the sins of the world on me for all time. Now, I am a very sensitive, impressionable little pre-alcoholic. And uh, that just sounded like a stacked deck, if you ask me. I mean, I don't know how I'm ever going to get out from underneath all of the sins of the world for all time, you know. And they told me that I needed to be, I uh, needed salvation and redemption, you know. And I believe me, I have no problem with church. I'm not, I'm not down on anything like that. I'm just telling you what my experience was. When I was a little kid, I must have gotten saved. I can't even count how many times. I mean, this minister at our church, every time they would say, you know, come on up, I was there. You know, I was trying to find an answer for my life, and my problem was of a spiritual nature, and it has always been that way. And when they told me that in AA, they were right. They were right. I had been trying to find some reason and some way to live as long as I can remember. And I remember my minister saying, you know, sweetheart, you can come up here if you want to, but you don't have to. I mean, you've already done this, and once is plenty, and you've been here about 80 times. Um, maybe you should be baptized. I've been baptized three times. I'm not kidding. I mean, I've been dunked. I've been sprinkled. I've, they've done everything that they could do. And what I wanted was a, was a feeling or a connection to a power greater than me, and I could never effectuate that. I could never get that. Because I always thought I came up with these other ideas, too, that they told me God was good and that God was love. And uh, so I thought that that meant that I had to be very, very good. I mean, they talked about sin. They said, you know, people who are followers here, that we don't sin, we don't do things wrong. And I don't know about you, but I just, I could be really good for just a little while. <laughs> and then I'm going to be bad because I do. That's what I do. I'm going to say something I shouldn't say or do something I shouldn't do. And now that I've been bad, now God's not going to help me because I've been bad. So all this time in Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd been shooting myself in the foot. You know, all this time I had been trying to make something happen, and I had no no way to effectuate this change that I needed, no way to effectuate the connection that I needed. And, uh, you know, what Phyllis told me was that if I wake up and I'm breathing, that it's a done deal. She said, your spirituality is a given. She said, you don't have to commit this from something you're trying to create. You just need to accept that it is. And if you're alive today, that God has something for you, you know. And uh, she said, he's, he's not going to be too hard on you. And it comes out of the big book. You know, it says that God does not make too hard terms with those who seek it. I really believe this. You know, if you look for me, you will find me. And it is available just like the reading tonight. It is available to absolutely everyone. And, uh, you know, what this did for me was it unlocked a door that had been locked. And it, it had blocked my progress for a long time. And uh, I was very willing to say that prayer. She also really had my attention when she talked about God loving me as if I were his only child. I thought about this a lot, and I remember thinking, if I could find a higher power, uh, if I had a higher power that loved me half as much as I love my kids, I bet that would be enough for me. I bet that would work. And, uh, you know, I, I thought about this a lot. I went back into the meetings in Kona, and I told them that I had a new higher power, and it was my breath. And they just said, that's nice, honey, you just keep coming back, you know. Um, but I meant it, you know, I mean, I meant it, my breath. And it's funny because as the years have gone by, I've found out a lot of really interesting things about that. One is that the, the whole concept of the breath is a, is a continuing thread through all of the major religions, all of the major faiths on earth. And, um, you know, the other thing for me, though, was that every time I would open my mouth and inhale the air on the back of my tongue, and it was the first time for me, that I had ever looked within to try to to try to make a connection ever, 
And there's a place in our book that says something like, deep within every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. And it says that in the final analysis, it is only there that he may be found. And it was when Phyllis told me this, you know, when I turn myself inward to that little place of peace that I've known about for 14 years now, there's never any confusion for me. I know exactly what that's about. And I know how to seek a power greater than myself now just from that. You know, I I ran into a Catholic, an ex-Catholic priest in our area who gives just a great talk. And he, in his talk, he sometimes says that the word spiritual comes from the Latin word espiritus. And another form of that word is sperare, which means to breathe. It's the breath of life. And I just thought that was so cool. I also found out something, this wasn't very long ago, you know, in Hawaii, this is where I am, in Hawaii, um, they call the white people haole. And the word haole in Hawaiian means man without breath. Because when the, when the white people arrived, they were so pale, and the Hawaiians thought they must not have any spirit. That's, you know, that must be what they are, so they called them haole. I didn't know that. I thought it was just kind of a slang term for, you know, honky or whatever. But anyway, um, it was a, it was really an amazing time. I was, I mean, I had a spiritual experience. I, it was the first time I ever offered myself to God and just said, if you want to do the deal, then let's do the deal. Because I'm all done. I was all done. And I had been praying forever. I had been praying for a long, long time. And what I found when I began to do this, this, this way, was something more than I ever bargained, you know. It was amazing. That was the beginning of my sobriety. I had a, a real spiritual experience, and I was a changed person almost from the beginning. I went back into meetings, and I got these sponsors that I'd had on the string for a long time that I really never talked to. And I started talking to them and telling them things, and I started trying to work the program of alcoholism. And, you know, what has happened for me is the most incredible, incredible life. It has been incredible. I mean, I was in a meeting about... I don't know, a month or something after my brand new spiritual experience, and in walks God's will for my life. And um, my sponsors my sponsors were like, oh, here we go. And um, anyway, I, I walked into a meeting one night, and I, or one afternoon, and I met Terry Egan. And uh, we pretty much have been together ever since, my entire sobriety. And I've had people come up to me and say, I wish you wouldn't tell that, because my sponsors do not need to hear that kind of thing. <laughs> But, you know, I'm sorry. That's just the way it was. You know, I don't know that it was a good idea or a bad idea. I just know that now I believe it was a really good idea. Uh, I was, I was in, you know, on a completely different basis, you know, and my sponsors did not discourage me from this. Phyllis was big on relationships. She told me this story. She said that, um, she said that when she was 17 years sober, she met Johnny. And Johnny had about four days. Literally. He had four days. And he was uh, fresh out of an institution in California, fresh out of prison. And she just saw him as being a really malleable young man. And she said that she wanted to be a lady in Alcoholics Anonymous, so she married all of her affairs. And she said that she married him, and they were just going to trudge the road to happy destiny together. And she said about six months into it, same old stuff was always happening for her. And she just, you know, it wasn't going her way, and she just packed her little bag and said, I don't need this crap, I'm out of here, you know. And Johnny stopped her. And he said, let me tell you something. He said, between us, we have had 13 committed relationships. And he said, we made this decision to be together with sober minds, and we are not going to run anymore. And he said, when you are locked up, he had done a total of 19 years in penitentiaries in California. Can you just imagine? Um, he said, when you're locked up with a guy in prison and you don't like your cellmate, that's just too bad. You can't leave. So he said, I'm going to teach you how to do time. And 
she just didn't even know how to take this. But he said, you know, we draw an imaginary line down the middle of our place, and you got your side of the bed, and I got my side of the bed, and you got your side of the table, and I got my side of the table. And when stuff would get get tough for them, and they'd be fighting over something, she said one or the other of them, over the many years they were married, one or the other of them would say, well, I guess it's time to do time. And what they would do is just kind of retreat to their own corner and just leave it alone. You know, they would stop trying to win the argument. They would try, stop trying to persuade anybody. they just leave it be. And they keep going to meetings and doing what they were doing. And she said that within a few hours sometimes or a couple of days, you know, somebody would do something funny or say something funny. And the next thing you know, they could be sitting down at the table talking about what they had been fighting about before. And she said if you want to have a long-term uh, successful relationship in Alcoholics Anonymous, you just don't leave and you don't die. And I know that sounds a little grim, but, um, you know, i got to tell you, that's my experience. You know, Terry and I got into this relationship, and he was 17 years sober. And I was like, I had more than four days, but I didn't have much more than four days. And um, there were a lot of people, there was some serious money lost on this deal <laughs> in Kona, I guarantee it. Um, you know, but we were just, I was just, for sure, I wanted. This is something I wanted to try, and we have been together. And I got to tell you, I love my husband more than I could ever tell you about. And that is not just something I'm supposed to say. You know, this I I respect him and admire. And I'll tell you, one of the biggest reasons is that he is the same man at six o'clock in the morning when he gets out of bed, and there is nobody there to see him but me. That he is when he's in the meeting at night. He's the same guy. He doesn't have an AA face. He doesn't put anything on. He's just who he is. And I have watched him walk his walk. And I have watched, and I watched. I watched how he handled his business affairs. I watched how he sponsors people. I watched how he treats his daughters. Uh, you know, it has been an incredible experience for me. I am a person who is not capable of having the kind of relationship that we both enjoy today. And I don't know that either one of us is. This, there's really no reason why this wasn't as big a mistake as anything else we'd ever done. We just celebrated 13 years of marriage, uh, July 9th. And... Um, that's AA, you know. Um, I got to tell you, when you know, when we were having our, our little anniversary, Cherry goes, "Gee, this is really a record for me." And I said, "Yeah, it's a record for me if you add them all together." <laughs> we have a wonderful, wonderful life. You know, we have a great life, and we've had we've learned to stay sober under the under the guidelines of uh, the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, we rely on the traditions. Um, whose responsibility is whose responsibility? You know, nobody in our house calls the shots or makes the rules. I mean, this is a group deal. And, um, you know, we we really do pray together. We really do get down on our knees and say the third step prayer together. And that's, that's solved a lot of fights for us. Uh, we are both very strong personalities. And, uh, you know, we were adults when we entered into this relationship. We weren't these, you know, vulnerable little teenagers anymore. And, you know, there's a danger. I mean, when you're uh, an adult and you're trying to have a, a mature relationship, an adult relationship, I mean, there's part of me that says, hey, I can change my own oil and I can take out my own garbage and I don't need this, you know. But it's been the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous who has taught us how to solve problems, how to learn to communicate with each other, how to be respectful. And I, I, I have, will tell you the truth. I wish you could all come to my house and see how we live. It is the most wonderful thing. When we get up in the morning, there's pleasant conversation. And uh, we look at each other when we talk to each other. I'm crazy about this man. I absolutely adore him. The best part of my life sober is being able to live with Terry Egan. We have so much fun. It is almost illegal, you know. And uh, it has been such a privilege to come here with him and, and to be able to share this conference together and to let you see him. Because when you see him, you see how we are. 
And this has been a gift from Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm telling you, I don't, I don't get this kind of thing the way I was living before. Snagettes, I guarantee you, there's just probably none of them alive yet, but if any of them are, they're not doing what I'm doing today. Um, you know, it hasn't all been easy sailing. My, um, I, I tried really hard to bridge the, the broken relationship with my kids. When I was two years sober, I got letters from every one of my kids. And this was really fueled by their dad and a lot of bitterness that he had. He made them all sit down and write me letters. And those letters, I still have them today because I don't ever want to forget the price of my sobriety, you know. Uh, but those kids sit down and wrote me letters and they said, we don't want to know you. Uh, you know, we're all done with you. You were a lousy mother when you had the chance and you're not going to get another chance and we want you to leave this family alone. And I just, that was one phrase out of those letters that really got me. Leave this family alone. And uh, I went to the Women in Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm telling you, I was on my knees and I was just dying. And they, uh, I wanted so much to have a responsive, or to have an opportunity to, you know, make up for the things that I'd done and to be the kind of person that I knew that I had the ability to be. And um, you know what they told me was they said, look, your kids are going to be adults longer than their kids. And right now, this is the way it needs to be. And they said, you honor those re- that request. You leave them alone. And they said, uh, you stay here and do what Alcoholics Anonymous asks you to do. And uh, if you do that and those kids ever want to know you, you will be able to walk through that experience. But if you don't stay here and you don't stay sober, you could miss the last chance you'll ever have, and you can't afford that. And um, they said if you stay sober and the kids never want to know you, at least you'll be sober. And I believed them, you know. But i got to tell you, it wasn't easy. And they, there was five of them, and every time one of them had a birthday or every time Mother's Day rolled around, it just killed me. And it was a couple of years. A couple of years went by, and I just it just killed me. I just couldn't. I just felt like there was something I should have been able to do, you know. And all the time up until then, I think my when I tried to make amends, it was always about apologies. I had done my steps lots of times and gone over and and over and over. And I tried so much to make up to them, and I couldn't do it. It was going to be in time, on time, God's time, you know. And I didn't get a vote in that. So I just had to leave it alone. It was about two years later I finally got a letter from my youngest daughter, Andy. And she was 12. And uh, my sponsor said, you write her back and you write her about her. You can talk about her and you can talk about you. You don't talk about them and you don't talk about him. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I just had to bite my tongue. And I, I wrote letters to her and I, you know, we had this little back and forth a little bit. And I said, hey, if I come up to Montana, will you see me? And she wrote back and said yes, that her dad would allow that. So I made the trip up to Montana, and I went by myself. And, you know, when they told me that I would have what it took to walk through the fear of that experience, they were not kidding. Because uh, I had to walk in there and present what you have given me in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. This was a very broken part of my life, and it was really painful. And Andy and I had about five days together, and it was fabulous. And I came back home. And a year later, I get ready to make another trip. This time, Andy sees me and Tawny sees me. Tawny is my middle daughter. And um, we just had the best time. We went to Yellowstone Park for a week, and we just camped out, and we played guitar, and we just had a blast, and it was so wonderful. But the other kids wouldn't have anything to do with me. And then uh, <clears throat> before the next year was out, my second daughter, Tracy, had run away from home, and she was down in Southern California, and she was on the streets of Bakersfield. And I don't know if anybody here has ever been to Bakersfield, but it is not a nice place. Not a good place for a 17-year-old kid. But that's what she was doing, and she was drinking, and she was doing drugs. And uh, I would get a phone call from her once in a while. And, uh, uh, you know, I remember her calling me one day saying, Mom, I've been sleeping in the park, and I'm really cold, and I'm hungry, and I don't have anywhere to be. And she said, I want to go back to Montana. Will you, will you give me a ticket to go back to Montana? And I would be like, 
I'll call you right back. <laughs> and I'd call my sponsor. Oh, my God, what do I do? What do I do? You know? And uh, my sponsor would say, you don't send her a ticket. You don't send her any money. You go get her. She said, get in the car. It'll take you about five hours to get there. Go get her. Bring her home. Bathe her. Feed her. Make sure she's okay. If she needs anything, give it to her. And then put her on the bus or the plane or whatever and send her to Montana. So I was like, okay. So I called Tracy back and said, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm coming to get you. I couldn't wait this year. I hadn't seen her in ages. I'm coming to get you. I'll be there in about five hours. And she said, well, just, you know, hold on a minute. Let me call you back. I didn't, I didn't hear from her for six months. And I just was just sure I'd handled it wrong. You know, I didn't know if she was dead or alive. And it just killed me. And, um, you know, it just fueled all the anger at home. Cause of course, it was my fault that she was doing all that, according to him and everything. It was just nasty. It was really bad. And because of that bitterness, my oldest daughter and my son, my only son, wouldn't see us at all. Now, before I even get into this story, i got to tell you, it's not a fun thing, except that it's it's been an incredible, incredible experience in my life. Um, it was five years. Five years, and I hadn't seen my son or my oldest daughter, and neither one of them would have anything to do with me at all. And I was going to go back up to Montana for another trip to see the kids, and Holly, before she was my sponsor, came to speak in the desert, and she talked about the difficulty with her kids, and she talked about some of the experiences. And after that meeting, I went and talked to her, and I told her, I'm getting ready to go back to Montana, and I haven't seen these two in almost five years. And she said, "Uh, write them a letter and tell them that you wait for the opportunity to meet with them that you really want them to know that you look forward to that time, that you will answer any of their questions, that you would just love to see them and meet with them, that if they don't want to see you, that you will honor that experience, that you will leave them alone. And uh, she said, just tell them that you you just wanted to remind them that you're still waiting for that. So I sent off the letter, and about a week later, the phone rang, and it my son. And uh, he was, he was uh, 18 years old, and he'd been 14 the last time I saw him. And he agreed that he would see me. And my oldest daughter said, yeah, that she'd see me too. And, you know, every bit of that fear, I'm telling you, I was just, my God, I mean, this was the biggest failure of my life. And I'm going to go up there and meet these kids. And I went by myself. And it was really good for me to go by myself. I needed to I needed to learn some things that I didn't even know. Uh, you know, I could stand there and meet these kids. Now, Polly was very, very precise with me. She said, I want to tell you something. Amends are not apologies. And she said, when you go up there, you do not say you're sorry. She said, you express your regret. There is a line in the big book in the eighth step, and it says that we confess our former ill feelings and we express our regret. And that was very empowering for me. She said, you don't make any excuses for them. You listen to what they have to say. You don't say, you know, if mom could have done better, mom would have done better. Of course, that's true. Uh, you don't say, I had a disease and I didn't have, you know, don't even go there. She said, you just listen to what they have to say and you say yes. That's right. That is exactly the way it was. That is exactly the way we live. And I so regret that that is the way it has been for us. And all I can tell you is that I am not that person. I am no longer the person that I was. And you are no longer the person you were. And all I can hope for is that after enough time, we could put together a new history, you know, that we could start and begin to get to know each other now because we really don't know each other at all. So I went up there armed with that, and I got to tell you, Daniel was a new member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he was uh, he was this gorgeous 19 year. He was 18 then. He was gonna almost 19, and he was beautiful and just this blonde, gorgeous kid. He was funny, 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 hysterically funny, very talented, very gifted musician, and 
and it was awesome. And he just, you know, I, I got to tell you something. When you are a mother with a child, there is nothing in the world that will take away that tie. I don't care what it is. I don't care how many years, how many miles, even death. Nothing weakens that tie. Nothing. And uh, I met him, and I hadn't seen him in five years, and he had changed a lot from this little 14-year-old kid to this big old, you know, gorgeous young man. And we just had the best time. And it was like we hadn't been apart for five minutes. And I was his mother. And uh, I'm so grateful for that. I had five days with him. And after I left up there, he had 89 days of sobriety. And he started drinking again. And he made it about six months. And he woke up one day. He was one month after his 19th birthday. And he just said, I can't live like this anymore. And I've been to AA, and it didn't work for me. And he took his life. And he um, he jumped off a cliff. And... um it was an amazing, it has been an amazing time. That was January 24th, 1995. And it just, it just did something to me that I, I couldn't even, you know, begin to tell you. Um, but it has been the most incredible experience of my life. Uh, it has been the most costly and the most painful thing I've ever gone through. But it has been absolutely the way by which I found a power greater than myself. Um, it was, I don't know. It just threw me into this whole area that I had no idea how to live, no idea how to be. I knew that if I didn't stay sober, I didn't have a prayer. I knew that I was in more pain than I'd ever been in in my life, and I was angry. And I scared a lot of people away. There were a lot of people in my home group that, and women that I sponsored just left. Everybody left. Nobody would stick around. My sponsors died. I had three sponsors that died. Uh, one died four months before Daniel died, and then Daniel, and then about a year and a half after that, my other sponsor died, and then I used her husband for a long time, and then he died, and, um, you know, it was, they were about the only ones who would stick around, but everybody else was afraid, and uh, I don't blame them for that. I, I did. I was so angry. I thought, what the heck, How, you know, what happened to this we go through this deal together thing, you know? And i got to tell you that there are things in, that happen to us in life that uh, cannot be remedied with another gratitude list. I mean, there. this is what life on life's terms is. And there are a lot of people who just think that grief is a defective character. I mean, I had people who said things to me, people who loved me, said to me, you know, you're having trouble with this because you haven't done a good enough third step. And that is, it's just not true. You know, the one, if, if I've learned nothing through this experience, is that I am not afraid of your pain. I will sit with you forever. I will never tell you you shouldn't feel that way. I will never tell you how to get out of it. I just know that if we stay sober, that God will bring the gift that always, always comes with the brokenness, always. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not complaining. Don't get me wrong. I am not faulting anyone. I think that, uh, you know, Terry and I have always been very active in AA in our area, and we were kind of out front, and I sponsored a lot of people, and uh, I've always been sort of like the strong one or something, they thought. And, um you know, when I started really having trouble, they didn't know how to deal with that. And they just didn't know what to do, so they just left. You know, they couldn't say anything to cheer me up, and they couldn't say anything to make it go away, and so they just kind of left. They just sort of retreated. And I'm sure they loved me silently. I'm sure they prayed for me silently. Um, it was a really hard time, and I don't see how it could possibly be anything else. It was two years and nine months after that that my second daughter died. And... Um, she was nine, She was 25 years old, and she was five years sober. She was the one who was on the streets of Bakersfield. She had died of a drug overdose, actually, and they brought her back to life. And she went into treatment, and she got sober and stayed sober. And she was married, and she had a little three-year-old. And she just caught a virus. She caught this. Um, there's only been 63 cases ever diagnosed in the whole world. And uh, she caught a virus, and it destroyed her heart. 
And she was just gone before they could even diagnose it. I mean, we didn't even know what was wrong. She was just so horribly sick. And, um, you know, those kids have both given me tremendous gifts. I mean, part of it, and this is not a fun part to tell, but i got to tell you something. This has been the most precious, precious thing. You know, when Phyllis told me um, that, um, you know, God, I don't know who you are, what you want from me, but if you want to do, you know, I know when I prayed those prayers, I sort of, came to terms with, with some kind of an idea of a power greater than myself. And I was willing, I was able, it was enough to effectuate sobriety for me. But it was because of these experiences that I have been able to find a connection to a power greater than me that is, is something that I didn't think was possible for a person like me. Now, I do not believe that God killed my kids so that I could find him. That is not the way it works for me. Uh, I don't believe, I've never believed that God will, won't give you any more than you can handle. That kind of, that is not the kind of higher power that I have. What I do know is that when I'm living in Donna's world, sometimes all I can see is the grief and the loss and the sadness. And I mean, this was not my first barbecue, and I was angry, sober. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do, and it's, you know, what's this? What is this supposed to be? But that's what it's like when I'm living in my world. But when I'm living in God's world, I couldn't even begin to count for you the gifts that have come from this, from this brokenness. It has been, I have been able to see the power of God in my life. I've been able to be an example, I guess, of that. Um, I've been able to be there for people, you know, who will come and share the most intimate pains of their life with me. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, it's been an incredible experience. Um, it's been painful, and it's been slow. And so many times in the middle of all this, it was sort of like that footprints thing. I mean, I couldn't see God. I would be like, where are you? You know, what is this about? I need some comfort. Many, many, many days, I was on my knees saying uh I'll do anything you want me to do. I will go anywhere. I will work anywhere. I will live anywhere. But you have got to keep me sober, and you've got to give me some peace. And I have to tell you that that's exactly what's happened for me, and I do not find it lacking in one small way. Um, I wouldn't trade one minute of my life for anything else, and that might be really hard to understand. I'm not happy that these kids are gone, but I am so grateful for the gifts that I've gotten. And in my whole family, it's been this way. Ten months after Daniel committed suicide, Tawny, my middle daughter, tried to commit suicide. And uh, she ended up, she was. they did this 5150 thing that they do in California where they lock you up for about three days. And when they let her out, they said, now you have to go to AA. And she believed them. And there wasn't anybody that I knew that was going to tell her that that wasn't really true, that she didn't have to go to AA. I mean, we all just went, yeah, yeah, got to go to AA. And... Um, that young woman is still sober today. She's got five years of sobriety, and she's 27 years old, and she is a gorgeous young woman. She's about 90 pounds right now. She's about to break that barrier because she's going to have her first baby in January, and um, she's just a delight. You know, she's just a wonderful woman. God has given me some really incredible experiences through all of this. You know, some of the things that I learned is that I have been given a gift, many gifts, by doing the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and one of them is that I have learned to take responsibility without taking the blame. You know, I don't have to walk around under a load of guilt saying, oh, my God, look what I've done to these kids, you know. Daniel did what Daniel had to do, and I really believe that. Uh, I've been given some incredible, incredible gifts. It was about three months after he died. He died in January, and um, it was like in March. They found this cassette tape that he had made for me that was supposed to be my Christmas present. Now, I mean, who who gets these kind of things? I mean, how do you get this? This is just more precious to me than anything in the world. 
But it's this whole tape, and he's playing his guitar, and he's singing songs, and he's talking to me, and he's joking with me. And, uh, you know, what I know in that tape is that my men's were complete, that uh, he didn't do what he did because I was his mother. Now, there is a selfish and self-centered part of me that probably would have thought that if I didn't have this. But what I have is proof that he not only loved me, but he liked me, and that everything that needed to be said was said. You know, and I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for that. And Tracy, I'm telling you, Tracy just gave me, Tracy was an active woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. She was a busy girl. And uh, I get the privilege of sitting in meetings today with women that she took through the steps. And that just means more to me than I can ever tell you. You know, she is an incredible, she was an incredible example to me. Spiritually, my daughter was head and shoulders above me or just about anybody that I know. I mean, she had a connection to God that was unbelievable. And it was something I didn't get. You know, it was something I didn't understand. And it's been through the experience of learning to walk through the, this loss that I have that I have begun to have that kind of connection too. This, these have been really precious gifts for me, you know. She gave me a gift of laughter, and she gave us this little girl. And there's that Andrea that was three years old when she died, and she's seven now. And I have to tell you that God has given me so many wonderful gifts, but one of them, the most precious probably to me, is that I can be there for Andrea. You know, Andrea, see, I have a very, very special place in her life because I am her only connection to her mother. I am her mother's mother. There is no other person on earth who can do that. And so I get to be there for this little girl. And she just has not forgotten one minute about her mother. I mean, they all said that she was only three and that she would, you know, not forget, but she would sort of move on. But I'm telling you what, she loves nothing more than curling up in my lap and looking through the photo albums. And she wants me to tell her the stories. Tell me about the funny things that I did when I was a little girl. Tell me about the funny things my mom did when she was a little girl. You know, I'm so grateful for that. That is not sad things to me. That is not sad. Those are precious, precious things. And, um, oh, my God, it's just its an incredible experience to be able to do that. There are days when I absolutely know, you know, I was a crappy mother to Tracy, and I didn't do a good job with her. But I am a very, very good grandmother to, to Andrea. And uh, I just know that Tracy would just love it. Tracy would just love this, that I get to do this for her little girl. My youngest daughter lives in the desert, and she's married to a guy that I just adore. And they have given us a little four-year-old angel that is so precious. She just loves her grandma and grandpa so much, and she's just a hoot. I mean, we may have to save a chair for her. I don't know. She's a she's a, a very enthusiastic little person, and she's just, oh, she's just into it all. And uh, about a week ago, uh, ten days ago, something like that, they invited us over for dinner one night, and we went. And everybody, we are all so busy, so busy. It's just amazing that we even got an evening that we could come over. And um, after dinner, Andy, my daughter, says, let's go in the living room. Reese wants to sing a song for you. And she does, this kid is four years old, and she does, like, the full musical score for Annie. I mean, she is a drama queen, I think. Um, she belongs here. She's an, and definitely belongs to my family. Anyway, uh, she comes running out and she goes, ta-da, and she's got this shirt on that says, I'm going to be a big sister. Isn't that cool? I just thought that was so awesome. So we're going to have another baby. And so, Tree, uh, and, uh, sorry, Tani's having a baby. She's due in about January. And Andy's having another baby. And then my oldest daughter, Trina, i got to tell you, you know, God has given me so many lessons about letting go. I mean, that's my lesson. Tell me if you don't think so. I mean, uh. Trina's always been a little like, yeah, okay, things are all right. Mom and I are talking, but it's never really been very good. 
You know, it's always been, I have a great ability to hurt her, and she has a great ability to hurt me. And we've always kind of treated each other like we're a couple of cactuses or something, you know. And it's always been a little bit, okay, a little touchy. And she moved to the desert about four years ago, and she's a, she's a brilliant woman. She teaches in, uh, Spanish and French at high school level, and she's just got a great little career, and she's very self-willed, very self-made, you know, very uh, very strong woman. Well, about a year ago, about a year and a half ago, she meets a guy online from Haiti that has no green card. <laughs> and she marries him, and they have a baby. And I'm like, does anybody but me think this is a bad idea? <clears throat> I was just freaking out. I was thinking, like, oh, my God, how can you do this, you know? And just one more time, I was wrong. I mean, one more time, I was wrong. Alex is a wonderful man. He's a very gentle, very uh, dignified sophisticated guy, which I expected this, you know, guy with dreadlocks down was here, <laughs> whatever. Anyway, they have this beautiful little baby that's four months old, and, you know, I get an opportunity to be in these lives today. And it was 14 years. For 14 years, I've been staying sober. For 14 years, I've been doing what AA has asked me to do. I've been being an AA woman. And the most important thing in the entire fullness of my life is involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm very involved in service. I go to prisons. I take meetings. I do a lot of stuff. I sponsor people. I do whatever I'm asked to do in AA, and I'm very happy to do it because it's a small, small price to pay. Um, It was about a month ago. I got an email from my daughter, my oldest daughter, and she said, you know something? She said in this email, she said, Mom, alcoholism took my mother away from me. And she said, I learned at a very early age to not need my mom. And she said, I've spent my whole life not needing you, and I've spent my whole life angry because of that. And she said, every night when I prayed, I asked God to give me back my mother, to give me back a relationship with my mother. Now, she's been in the desert for four years. She said, now that I am a mother, I need you more now than I ever did. And she said, today, you are there for me. She said, AA has given me my mom back. And she said, I feel your support. I feel your love. I don't feel your judgment. She said, I just know that you are so on my side. And that is what AA has given me. You know, I don't know about you, but that was worth every rotten inventory I ever had to do. You know, it was worth every despicable order my sponsor ever issued, you know. Um, I live an incredible life today. I live with a man that I am so crazy about. We have so much fun. We have a wonderful marriage. We have just a peaceful, wonderful way to live. And I just, I love it. It means more to me than I can tell you. I have three gorgeous daughters, and they are married to wonderful men, and they are having families of their own, and they completely trust me with their little angels, you know. I want to tell you one little story before I end, and this is uh, something that it was, uh, every once in a while I get these little zingers, you know. I get a little something from God, and I know it comes from God because I'm not smart enough to think of this. This was about maybe three weeks before Tracy died. We have this gorgeous home in the desert, this big pool in the backyard and a jacuzzi back there. And we just love to go out winter nights and take a jacuzzi underneath this beautiful desert sky with all the stars. And it's just really pretty, really nice. We're out there taking a jacuzzi one night, and Terry says to me, do you know the difference between a star and a planet? Can you tell which ones? And I I don't know where you were in seventh grade science class, but no, no, I don't know. And he said that the stars twinkle and the planets don't twinkle. And he said the reason for that is because a star emits its own light, and it's an inconsistent light. It is burning, so it's creating its own light. But a planet reflects light from something greater than it is. It reflects light from something bigger than it. The moon is a great big planet. It reflects the light of the sun. And I decided, oh, that's 
that's cool, whatever, you know. And it was about, it was like after, really, it was after Tracy died. It was a few days later. I was thinking about that. I don't know why I was thinking about that. But I was thinking, you know, that's, that's like my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, when I've got it under control, and I got it all covered, and I'm just being the big star in AA, and I'm sponsoring everybody, and I'm secretary of this and treasurer of that, and I just think I'm so wonderful. You know, uh, I'm emitting my own light, and it's a very inconsistent light. But i tell you one of the biggest gifts that I've had in the last few years is that in my brokenness and feeling like I had nothing to bring to you, I have been able to stand back and reflect light from something greater than me. You know, my life today, my sobriety day uh, today is a gift from God. And it's something that I, that I just, it is more precious to me than anything. I would never survive the conditions of my life if I weren't sober. Because the self-pity would kill me. But uh, sober, I find so much joy. And I want to thank you tonight for listening to me. Thank you for inviting me to your conference. God bless you all. Thank you.